And I decided today that I would not talk about anything controversial. I just want you to have a nice, peaceful Thanksgiving. So I'm not going to stir anything up today. So let's talk about vaccines. <laughs> We're going to talk about a vaccine that I believe we all need to get. In fact, I believe this vaccine should be mandatory. I believe it is essential for everyone here. In fact, I hope to have convinced you by the end of this message to take the vaccine yourself. But before you check out of this talk or walk out because you disagree with me, I assure you I'm not talking about a vaccine for COVID. I'm not talking about a vaccine that gets injected by a needle or a vaccine that you need to go to a country or fly on a plane. In fact, no human had anything to do in crafting this vaccine. And if you embrace this vaccine, it will protect you from potentially soul-destroying threats. And it can empower you to go through some of the hardest things in your life. So what is this vaccine? It is that Jesus Christ is supreme over everything. And embracing Jesus as supreme overall can vaccinate us and empower us. And today we're going to explore this statement as we come to a passage that contains one of the strongest doses of this vaccine in the entire New Testament. It portrays Jesus in a way that you may never have seen him before. Paul wrote about this vaccine to the Colossians because they needed it. They were vulnerable to a soul-destroying threat. And they also needed the power this vaccine offered to deal with the hard things in their lives. So today we're first going to look at how this vaccine can protect us and empower us. And then we're going to spend some time looking at this most potent dose of the vaccine in the letter to the Colossians. And I pray that by the time we're done today, you'll be ready to further embrace the supremacy of Christ over all things and over all things in your life. So I'd ask you to find Colossians in your Bibles. It's on page 834 in the Bibles in front of you if you don't have a Bible with you today. And we're going to spend some time in some verses later in Colossians before we get to our key passage for today, which is chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. So first of all, how can embracing Jesus as supreme vaccinate us against soul-destroying threats? To understand that, we have to back up and look at the purpose of this letter. Why did Paul write it? We learned that Paul wrote it from prison, and we think he was visited by a guy named Epaphras, who is mentioned early in chapter 1, and Epaphras founded the church in Colossae. And then Epaphras left Colossae to go visit Paul in prison, wherever he was at, to tell him what was going on there. And from that visit, Paul decides to write the letter to the Colossians. But he doesn't write just a greeting card. There was a significant problem that threatened the Colossians. And Paul addresses it directly in chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, look at a couple of verses in chapter 2 
like verse 8, for example. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Or look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions. Or verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So it seems like this false teaching had infiltrated the church and was starting to affect different people in the church. There may have been a powerful leader who did three things. He had a teaching of some sort, and this teaching involved spiritual things like worshiping angels or talking about visions. And then thirdly, there was a to-do list for people to follow to access spiritual benefit and protection. So three things. A teaching from a human, mix in some spirituality, add a to-do list, and those three factors combine to make self-made religion, as Paul describes it in verse 28. And we might be tempted to think, well, you know, those ancient people, they're so superstitious, they are so naive, they don't know what we know today, we would never do anything like that. Well, here's a little test. Say things are going well in your life or at your job, and someone asks you a question. How are things going at your job? How are you doing in your life? And you answer, things are going pretty well. Or, Oh, did you hear all the neighbors? They've got a cold or they've caught COVID, but I haven't caught COVID yet. Ever knocked on wood? Why do we knock on wood? The origins of knocking on wood, we don't know for sure. Some say it traces back to ancient pagan cultures like the Celts who believed that spirits and gods resided in trees and knocking on tree trunks may have served to rouse the spirits and call on their protection. Or others theorize that we knock on wood when we're talking about good things in our lives so that the spirits can't hear them. Or, according to history.com, some Christians linked the practice of knocking on wood to remembering the wood of Christ's cross. And I don't know how that would work or what good that would do. But it all sounds pretty superstitious, somewhat spiritual. And the more we turn to little things like knocking on wood for hope and help in our lives, the more we diminish Christ and depending on him. But when we have a clear picture of the supremacy of Christ over everything, there is no need to knock on wood. Christ is in charge. We trust in him. So embracing Jesus as supreme over all can vaccinate us against Christ-diminishing errors 
that threaten our soul. And this was one of the problems at Colossae in the church. And then we said that embracing Christ's supremacy can empower us, but for what? And for this one, we have to go back to Colossians 1, verse 11, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. And it says, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. And we learned that this means endurance to go through difficult things. And patience involved dealing or showing patience to difficult people. So that the power of God is available up for, to, for us to help us endure difficult things and show patience with difficult people. But then there's two words at the end of verse 11 that make this even harder. Do you see them there? With joy. It's hard enough to endure difficult things or show patience with difficult people. Can we do it with joy? And the possibility is that if we embrace Jesus' supremacy over the difficult things in our lives and over the difficult people that we have to deal with, it is possible we can even do that with joy. And so we look at the difficult things in our lives and we look at the difficult people in our lives and it's not just us and them or us and the situation. It's Jesus is supreme over it. And as our faith in him grows, we trust that even though I don't understand what's going on, even though I don't understand why I have to deal with this person, I trust that Jesus is supreme and that you will see me through whatever I face. So these are two reasons why embracing Jesus as supreme can vaccinate us against an error or empower us for hard times. And I got these from uh, John Piper on a message on this because I really struggled this week in finding out why should the supremacy of Christ matter to us in everyday life. And he, he came up with these, which I think are brilliant answers. But then we have to have a picture of the supremacy of Christ. And now we need to go to our passage. So remember, this passage on the supremacy of Christ is going to come before he deals with the false teaching because he wants to have in their minds a picture of how great and supreme Christ is before he goes to the teaching to show them how Small this teaching is compared to Christ and his supremacy. So let's look at Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Talking about Jesus here. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or have supremacy. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him... 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this is one of the greatest passages on the supremeness and exaltation of Christ in the entire New Testament. And if you want encouragement and strength for your life, meditate long and hard on Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And here we find that Christ is so far above everything that in him we can face anything. So what do we discover here? And I'm just going to focus on two today. We could spend weeks in this passage. But two, the first one is that Jesus is Lord over all creation. Jesus is Lord over all creation. Now, to a first century reader, especially a Jewish reader, this would sound strange. For according to the Old Testament, who is over all creation? God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But here we see Jesus. The image of the invisible God. Image, not just a faint reflection or representation. It puts the invisible God into an image, a visible form in Jesus for us. Jesus is the fullest and deepest revelation of God. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus and his life. And then we see at the end of verse 15 that he is Lord over creation, over all creation. Except what does it say at the end of verse 15? He is the firstborn of all creation. Now what does firstborn mean to you and to me? First one born, right? Does this mean that Jesus is the first one born of creation? If so, we have a huge problem. Because God is uncreated. He is eternal. And if Jesus is the first one born of creation, it means he is created or a lesser God. He is subordinate to God, not a co-equal person in the Trinity. And that is what the Arians and modern-day Jehovah Witnesses believe. They have misunderstood this verse and created a human-made religion out of it. There's God, then there's the lesser God, Jesus, who was created, and we reach God somehow by our good works. But firstborn does not mean first one born here or in the Old Testament. It means the one with highest honor. It is the one who enjoys the privileges that were usually given to the firstborn. And we see this in Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23, for example, when God is instructing Moses what to say to Pharaoh. And the Lord says to Moses, Say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve you. Now, were the Israelites the first people created in the, in, the, in the world? No. God chose them to carry out his saving work and gave them the status of highest honor. So they would receive the privileges of firstborn. But it does not mean first one born. And in the same way, Jesus, the firstborn of creation, means the one with the highest status in all of creation. 
And then verses 16 and 17 reinforce this. And listen for the word all. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth and under the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that means Jesus created the mountains and oceans and the animals and insects and all the spiritual beings which kind of makes worshiping angels questionable why would you worship an angel as talked about in chapter 2 when you can worship the creator of angels jesus and ultimately the universe And the world are held together by jesus in him all things hold together He is above gravitational force and all the things necessary to keep the universe functioning. And if he can hold together the universe, do you think he can hold together your life? So Jesus is Lord over all creation. And secondly, Jesus is Lord over all salvation because he came to make peace through his blood. So we read in verse 18 that he is the head of the church or the body of the church. He is the beginning, and then the same word again, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So that does not mean he is the first one raised from the dead, but he has the highest status of anyone raised from the dead, and he's the only one that was raised from the dead and is still alive today. So he is absolutely and totally unique. He himself conquered death. So that in everything he might have supremacy. No one else in the universe can claim that status of conquering death. For in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then verse 20 and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So that kind of sounds like some sort of ultimate salvation, reconciling to himself all things. So God will reconcile himself to all things through Jesus. But we have to be careful with that phrase. Reconcile himself to all things because some take it and conclude well in the end God through Jesus blood will save everyone including Satan and the fallen angels because it says he's going to reconcile himself to all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by his blood everyone's going to be saved Satan and his angels will be saved because the power of Jesus' blood is so powerful we don't have to worry. But there's some major problems with that interpretation. It contradicts so many other parts of Scripture. 
Jesus' own words, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So if Colossians 1.20 means God's going to save everyone, why would Jesus insist on going through the narrow gate only when everyone's going to be saved anyway? Sounds kind of like a cult leader. You've got to come my way, even though everyone's going to be saved in the end. And would you be okay with the devil showing up in heaven? The one who is at war with you, who wants to destroy you and your family and your kids and your soul, and he does that through your entire life, and he works to actively oppose you, and he shoots you with flaming darts of discouragement, and he never repents, and then you get to heaven, and there's the devil. Doesn't that violate your sense of justice and God's justice? So what could reconcile himself to all things mean. And for this, I'm going to depend on New Testament scholar Doug Moo, who has studied Paul and the New Testament for over 50 years and taught a course that I attended in the spring on Colossians. And he says this, reconcile himself to all things does not mean everyone is saved. It means everything is reconciled. And there is a form of reconciliation that affects everything. So, those who trusted Christ find their faith satisfied on Judgment Day when he declares them not guilty because of Jesus' sacrifice. And he reconciles the earth from its frustration and decay that occurred when sin came into the world. So the actual planet will experience some form of reconciliation. And the age-old conflict between God and his loyal angels and Satan and the fallen angels will be reconciled. The devil and his angels will all be judged and cast out forever, never to trouble God's people again. Only the supreme Lord could accomplish such a reconciliation of all things. And that supreme Lord is Jesus. And if Jesus can do all that, he can certainly help us in our lives. So we said embracing Jesus as supreme Lord vaccinates us against Christ-diminishing errors that threaten our soul. And embracing Jesus as supreme Lord can empower us to live with the Lord's joy through hardship and dealing with difficult people. And the question today is, will we embrace Jesus as supreme over all things in our lives? And, and how might we do that? Well, one way is through thanksgiving. Saying things like, I thank you, Jesus, that you came and are the image of the invisible God. I thank you that you are Lord over all the creation I see. I thank you that you created me. I thank you for creating the world and holding the universe together. I thank you that you are the head of the church. I thank you that you rose from the dead and live today. I thank you that you have the fullness of God in you. I thank you that you will one day bring complete and pure justice. 
I thank you that you will restore the earth from its bondage to decay. I thank you that you will reconcile the age-old conflict in the heavens and deal with the devil and the fallen angels permanently. And I thank you, Jesus, that you have made peace between me and your Father through your blood on the cross. And whatever you face today, Jesus is supreme over it all. So let us come to him with thanksgiving and remembrance at his table. And Lord, as we prepare for your table today, we remember it is because of your blood at the cross that this universal reconciliation that affects everything is possible. And right now we still await the final reconciliation, but we already get to taste some reconciliation between the Father and us because of you. And when we walk with you, we are reconciled and can walk with peace in our souls, even through hard times. And so I pray, Lord, that your supremacy and glory and height overall will be a comfort today to us that nothing is beyond you in whatever we face and that you will walk with us. We give you glory and pray this in your name. Amen.